The court will now proceed to the fourth and final case on today's docket. Florida Department of Health versus Flora Grown LLC. Counsel? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I'm Joe Jaco with the governor's office representing the Department of Health. And with me today is Daniel Bell for the House of Representatives. I wish to reserve a minute for rebuttal. The order below is a separation of powers concern when, as here, the statute does not directly conflict with a proper textual interpretation of the amendment. Medical Marijuana Amendment Section 29A sets up an immunity for MMTCs. 29B5 has two conditions for that immunity. First, an entity must be within a larger set of performing one or more of the listed activities. And second, the entity must be in the subset of registered by the department. Then section 29D calls upon the Department of Health to regulate registration. And 29E invites the legislature to further regulate under its authority. Nothing in the amendment proscribes a horizontal, prescribes a horizontal market model, nor does the amendment elbow out the legislature's vertical integration of NMTCs. However, Florgren makes three mistakes interpreting the amendment for NMTCs on immunity, on registration, and on legislative regulation. First, Florgren misreads B5's use of the word or on the scope of immunity to falsely assume a mandated horizontal market. Second, Florgren overlooks B5's registered by the department requirement on which both the Department of Health and legislative regulation actually operate. And third, Florgren avoids the amendment's full context on registration on which there is not just a ministerial duty, but under section D, MMTCs must be regulated, including with licensure on caps as deemed by the legislature. And as the amendment doesn't address MMTC license caps, there is no direct conflict for this certified question. We ask this court to properly interpret the amendment and overturn the injunction. Counsel, can I ask you a question? It, it seems, it, it part of your argument in the briefs, it seems like you want us to interpret um, the statute the way we would normally interpret a statute in terms of almost this kind of rational basis review, given that you know it's an economic regulation. But since the constitution says that the, uh, regulations issued by the department have to be reasonable and they and they have some kind of goals of the regulations and some of the scope of the regulations here doesn't that kind of change the nature of our review in the sense that uh the question for us wouldn't be or for the court it seems like it's it involves would have to involve fact finding but instead of asking ourselves like we would in a normal case could a legislature rationally require vertical integration. Instead, it seems like the Constitution would require us to ask, you know, given all the facts that might be presented in an actual, you know, trial, 
is this in fact a reasonable approach? Your Honor, while we do think that the statute has a rational basis, the question that's certified to the court is purely a question of whether the statute conflicts with the amendment. And that's just a question, question of interpretation of the text of the amendment. I guess my that's point, though, is, is that we couldn't really know, because this it, because this arguably changes the standard of review, it, it's, it circumscribes the discretion that the legislature ordinarily would have would have had. I don't know that we could just say as a matter of law that ver requiring vertical integration is necessarily reasonable. I, I mean, we, I, I'm not saying I agree with the, what the, the way the first, I think you're right about the way you interpret the definition of MMTC. The, the amendment doesn't tell you how it needs to be regulated, whether it's vertical or horizontal or whatever. But I guess my question to you though is, is that how, how could we say as a matter of law that a particular regulation or statute, and I think really the statute can't be, you can't have a statute that's unreasonable, but in conjunction with a reasonable regulation requirement in the text. So how can we say as a matter of law that this statute is reasonable? That's right, Your Honor. The, the amendment does not dictate any kind of market model. Certainly it doesn't dictate a horizontal model. Um, and you know, the question for the court is a question of this injunction, right? A uh, question of the likelihood of success on the merits for the purpose of this injunction. So we're not asking the court to get into the reasonableness. I mean, and certainly in relation to the caps, we would say you don't have to at all. The, there is no direct conflict between the amendment and a requirement for MMTC caps. Rational basis isn't a question for the court today. But, in, but certainly the interpretation, the proper interpretation of the amendment is the amendment section 29A provides immunity when an MMTC is, quote, in compliance with this section and the Department of Health regulations. And accordingly, the MMTC definition in B5 has two prongs. The first is that an entity must engage in one of the listed activities, and that establishes a potential immunity or the universe of immunity that may be gained. But the second prong is whether an entity is registered by the department, and that is for the actual immunity. And that is the place that both the department's regulations on registration and the legislation has taken action. So in essence, the statutes and does not replace the amendments or. If you look at chart the chart on page 26 of Floor Grown's brief, that's an apples to oranges comparison. The, the, the statute requiring vertical integration is a matter of registration regulation. It does nothing to affect the immunity, the broad scope of immunity that may be available to any one of these activities. And just because the legislature... Can I, can I excuse me, can I interrupt and ask a question? Given the, um, 
the general principle of judicial restraint that we don't um, address the constitution, a constitutional issue, if there are other bases for deciding the case. And given that the constitutional issue is only preliminarily decided in the case below, um, if we find that there are other reasons why the preliminary injunction should not have been entered, such as a failure to meet one of the, the, the prong of um, irreparable harm, should we even address the constitutional issue? Well, you, sh you should for two reasons, um, Justice Lawson. One, both the Department of Health and Flora Grown are seeking it. So we are in alignment that we're seeking a decision on the substantial likelihood of success on the merits. And second, if this court doesn't, this issue is going to continue. It's going to be an issue when it goes back to trial. It's an issue in forestalling the overall process of regulating MMPCs. Uh, you've seen the litigation flourish, and this court can properly interpret the amendment to provide that ability to move forward with clarity under the statute. Let me just make a second point here, and that is, what does registration actually mean? Registration of an MMTC is more than just a ministerial duty under the amendment. This litigation began with Floor Grown drafting its own premature registration letter, and the amendment, though, requires much more than that. Section 29B's requirement that an MNPC must be registered by the Department of Health should be read in context with Section D as well, which sets out regulations for procedures for registration. The amendment's full terms on registration show this is much more than just mere paperwork. Section 29B5 demands an entity is registered by the department not with the, the department. This isn't a passive role of the department accepting a piece of paper. This is an active role of the department applying the regulations on registration. And when we look to section 29D1C, we see what these procedures are. There are one, the issuance, renewal, suspension, and revocation of registration. That's clearly more than mere registration. That's more licensing-like. And we also see standards to ensure safety, security. These are the kinds of things that you would also expect of a police power, that you would expect the legislature to act on. And indeed, the amendment invites the legislature in, in subsection E, titled legislation. This is, this is true because if there wasn't a robust requirement for registration that is like licensing, then Florgon could merely submit its application, get re rejected, or have the registration revoked, and then the next day just re-register. But instead, this court's own ballot initiative recognized that DH DOH's role was, quote, overseeing and licensing, and it saw that DOH's role would not impact the legislative function. Thus, the amendment does not preempt a legislative regulatory scheme. Let me hit the third issue quickly, which is, does the amendment actually invite a responsive legislature? 
You heard in the argument earlier this morning on the adult use question that <clears throat> council mentioned, this may circumvent a non-responsive legislature. Here we have a responsive legislature. They have taken action and they've taken action under the amendment. The legislature in doing that has used its plenary authority, which is what you'd expect when we're talking about regulating something that is illegal under federal law and illegal under state law for recreational use. This is seen in the amendment in section D, which calls on regulations for the availability and safe use of medical marijuana. And this is not just the legislature acting under some guise of an exception in subpart E, but this is the core power of the legislature that this court recognized in its ballot initiative to make policy. Otherwise, this ballot initiative would have violated the non-delegation doctrine, much less does it strip the legislature of its regulatory role. Your honors, I would, if there are no further questions at this time, reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Council, please proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Daniel Bell, and I'm general counsel to the Florida House of Representatives, and it's my pleasure to appear today on behalf of the House and in support of the department. Uh, I, I, I agree with what Mr. Jacob has said today, and I think he's done an excellent job uh, walking us through the text. I'd like to start uh, with a few minutes I have with addressing uh, your concern, Justice Munoz, uh, regarding the potential scope of judicial review in a case like this. Uh, and and whether the amendment modifies traditional rational basis review. Is that, is that a fair understanding of your question? So, so first I'd like to start by saying that the, uh, in this case, as pleaded in the operative complaint, uh, Floragrone did not argue that the vertical integration requirement was unreasonable. So this issue hasn't been fully briefed, but what I would say is, I think that if anything, the text of the amendment calls for uh, traditional rational basis review, if not for perhaps even uh, curtailed review in this area. And that's for, that's for several reasons. First, uh, the phrase reasonable regulations, uh, I think is a fair textual call out to traditional rational basis review, because of course, rational basis review is the familiar standard in which the question is whether the legislature could have reasonably concluded uh, that the law serves a permissible government interest. And then in the next sentence of the text, what we see is a, a, a several enumerated uh, textually uh, expressed permissible government interests, including safe use and availability of, the, of this drug. And it, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but isn't it, you know, normally the legislature gets to choose its ends. And the question would be, has it, ra you know, is there any rational, uh, can you ascribe any kind of rational understanding to why they would have pursued them a certain way or what, how they chose the ends? Um, in this case, though, the text tells the department what the ends of the regulation has to be. And you, you could read it as, you know, almost Im imposing an obligation to ensure the availability of, of this stuff. And so I don't know that rational basis review really translates. I mean, in a normal APA case, you have a legislative command 
you have regulations. Obviously, there's much more searching review of the regulations to see are they justified factually? You know, is there a proper fit between means ends, et cetera, et cetera? And I kind of struggle given given that, you know, for better or worse, and I think the court may have been a little bit overly optimistic in its opinion approving this as to how there wasn't, you know, that, that it wasn't really changing kind of key separation of powers principles. But, you know, given that it's authorizing the department to regulate, telling it what the goals of the regulation need to be and imposing this reasonableness requirement, that doesn't sound like rational basis review. So, so I'm happy to address that, Your Honor. So, so a couple of points. First, I, I think it's important to recognize that the textually stated goals of availability and safe use are inherently competing. And I don't think we can read into the requirement, certainly not a judicially enforceable uh, requirement that the legislature provide for the availability of the drug. And that's for, that's for several reasons. First, because availability, uh, much like adequacy in the context of the education cases like Citizens for Strong Schools, is an inherently subjective standard. And it's particularly so when the text commands not only availability, but also uh, safe use. Uh, I, I'm not sure what judicially manageable standard the courts would be able to deploy to determine whether either of those goals had been met, and particularly whether they had both been met or in any particular balance. And so I think it's a fair reading uh, to say that judicial review in this area calls for uh, the, the court to look to whether the, whether the legislature could have reasonably concluded that the, uh, that the law is, uh, go, is going to further those interests in availability and safe use. And that is precisely what this law does. So the vertical integration requirement, Your Honor, goes to safe use by uh, creating the type of tightly regulated market that was called for in Department of Justice guidance that was in effect at the time that the amendment at issue was drafted. Uh, specifically, so, the Cole memo that is, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Your Honor. If there are more proceedings on the merits here, it, it, it really, sh there shouldn't be any fact finding involved. So what I, well, all I can say for now, Your Honor, is that I don't think there's any basis for the court's uh, to uh, look into, I, I think the court, yeah, I, th I think that's fair. I, I think that the, the legislature's determinations as to whether their, uh, whether their laws uh, promote availability and safe use can be determined only for, for whether they could have uh, reasonably uh, determined that they further those interests and, and evidence cannot really be to the contrary because it's a question of law. And uh, I see that my time has uh, run out. Thank you. All right, uh, we thank you. Council, you may proceed. Good morning, your honors. May it please the court. I'm Kathy Giddings of Ackerman and I'm here on behalf of Flora Grown. Your honor, um, I would disagree with several of the things that my um, opponents have stated, um, uh, specifically as to the fact that we did not prove that um, the caps were unreasonable. There was a two-day evidentiary hearing in this case at which both sides had an opportunity to present evidence, and I'll get into just a second why the caps are in fact unreasonable. So, Justice uh, Munis, I don't think you need to get into the question of what standard should be applied because it fails the rational basis test. But this case is not about public policy. Your honors, this court has unanimously and repeatedly said that the legislature can't come in and change the plain language of the Constitution. 
What the legislature is asking you to do is to allow it to change the words here. If you accept that argument, that means that the legislature could come in and say under its regulatory authority that someone would have to have all of the debilitating conditions. It makes no sense. And, it, and you look at the plain language, it uses the term or. Now, if there's any doubt on that confirmation, you look at the intent document. Now we say it's plain on its face, but the intent document that was issued before the amendment was released, uh, was voted on, expressly states that this was to set up a vertical system. Um, the, the legislature has come in and the department was proceeding to have a horizontal system. It was proceeding in following the amendments dictates and the legislature came in and said, we control you, we control your funding. And if you do not do what we say, then um, we're gonna withhold your funding. Um, the constitution, it, it's easy to determine from the plain uh, text. And I would um, uh, ask this court to look at Garcia versus Andoni in Garcia versus Andoni, the legislature tried to do something very similar to what it's doing here regarding the homestead exemption, and this court determined that it could not do so. And if you accept their argument, I would also say that the new amendment governing first responders, this uh, benefits for death benefits for first responders, they could say that a military member doesn't just need to have resided in the state or have been on a post, it would change it to and. Council, I'm sorry to interrupt you though. I mean, it seems like the 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 definition goes to the it can relate to the immunity and where we look in the text of the amendment to you know what the kind of constraints on regulation are. Um, that's in in subsection D, and there's nothing in there that says you know how many uh, how many MMTCs need to be registered slash licensed and what the criteria for that should be? Well, Your Honor, I think that, that question goes more to the rational relationship of the CAPS, and I'm happy to get into that. But I would tell you that if you look at the definition of an MMTC, the first word is to, quote, acquire marijuana. That, that word would make no sense if you take out the or and you require them to do everything because no entity would ever acquire marijuana. And so that, that reads in with the or. But as to the caps, what we, the, the, the thing that you need to understand about the caps is that the legis, the reason that the, the court found uh, that it was to a closed class and that they were giving these licenses away to settle lawsuits, they've never evaluated who is the most qualified but they are not rationally related because as the department's director testified at, uh, uh, in the depositions that we submitted at the evidentiary hearing, there is no relationship to the caps because the legislation does not control or dictate the amount of marijuana that any of these entities can process or grow. The director said that they have no control over that and that the MMTC could have a, a facility the size of a postage stamp or it could have one the size of a target. And they also just lifted the caps on the amount of dispensaries. 
Um, uh, but we have record evidence. We submitted 20 affidavits, and you can also look at the triangle brief that shows that even though there are these dispensaries out there, patients who are critically ill cannot get the products they need, and when they can, they are at outrageous prices. Remember that one of the reasons that these license, the licensing procedure is not appropriate and is not rationally related to any uh, qualifications is that when an entity gets that license, it can immediately turn around and sell it. Today, there are 22 licensed uh, medical marijuana treatment centers. Of those, 12 got their licenses on open market uh, and they were selling for as much as $50 million. So what you've got is people have these licenses and they're having to make money back. And so what they are doing is they are charging astronomical amounts. Um, Florida, I believe, is up to four times more medical marijuana than other states. And the department has never registered one single entity. Now, let, let me, let's, there seems to be a lot of confusion here about the difference between registration and licensure. Registration, the best example that I can give you is that when you want to become a lawyer, you have to submit an application to the Board of Bar Examiners. The Board of Bar Examiners website talks about registering. Then you have to fill out all of that information. You have to show that you are a good moral character. You have to be inspected. And then you have to take the bar exam. And after you have done all of those requirements, that's phase one of, of registration. After you've done all of those requirements, then you are given a certificate or a license to be able to practice law. The same thing works here. In order to get a license, you register, but the department's not accepting any applications. It's never accepted one single application from anyone that was not uh, either to settle a lawsuit or a pre-dispensing organization. And there is this laundry list of things that an entity would have to establish before they could ever touch any medical marijuana at all and get certified. And all Florigrone is asking for is an opportunity to be considered to show that it has all the qualifications. It has a nursery license. It has a physician on staff. It has a facility ready to go. It has a uh, hemp cultivation license, but it can't be considered because the, of the, the legislative dictates. Um, and remember that if you look at the statute, the legislature, there's, the statute is 27 pages long. We are only attacking a very, very small portion of the statute. And there is a severance provision in that statute. And you will notice that that severance position, uh, provision is only in the um, uh, section eight, uh, subsection eight, which governs MMTC. So the legislature was aware that when it gave these to these closed classes, that it was not going to, uh, that there were going to be questions about this and it might be held unconstitutional. And again, the state is asking you to read words out of the constitution. Um, and I would, uh, I would call to the court's attention 
attention um, when uh, uh, Judge Lawson mentioned the injunction. Um, uh, if you look at the City of Jacksonville versus Nagel Outdoor Advertising case, it states when there is a full evidentiary hearing that the court can go to the merits and that is what the trial court did here. And it uh, found that these were unconstitutional closed classes, as we've stated in our brief, and that there, there is no rational relationship between the statute and the, um, uh, and the amendment and the statutes that have been enacted. Um, um, does the court have any other questions? Was it uh, now one of the points in the briefing was that you would have if, if the if the rulemaking process hadn't been enjoined that you would have been able to apply obviously with no guarantee of success but you would Correct. have been able to apply so doesn't that defeat the irreparable harm argument no your honors because we've never been able to apply and this the amendment itself recognizes that the department was supposed to issue regulations by October 2017 and it has never implemented any regulations to register MMTCs so the amendment itself expressly allows any Florida citizen to come in and attack uh, the uh, or to compel the department to do its duties. The department has never done what it was supposed to do. It's never registered. It's never considered. All Flora Grown is asking is to have a fair chance to participate in the process. But and you, didn't you, wasn't the effect of the injunction that you sought to halt a rulemaking process that would have resulted in you, uh, again, with no guarantee of the outcome, but that would have resulted in you being able to compete for a license? Your Honor, it was be the the uh, it was to stop the department from issuing licenses to settle these cases. They've continued to issue licenses only to settle cases. But there were but the statute and the rules would have there still would have been another, obviously not you know limited in number, but there still would have been a, a, a number of slots that you could have competed for. No, Your Honor, the department is not accepting any applications, and it's uh, under it. it it has never accepted any applications. It continues to give those licenses to people to settle lawsuits. It gave out eight last year. There are no licenses that are available. Um, we've never been given an opportunity to show that uh, our client is qualified under the statute. Um, I think the question was, if the regulations that were under consideration had been adopted, then you would have been able, your client would have been able to apply for one of the available licenses? No, sir, Your Honor, they would not have been able to apply that? because they have capped the licenses and the legislature prohibited the department from allowing anyone to apply. So um, as to the irreparable harm, um, uh, and that I, I think you're getting to two elements in the injunction. One is the status quo and one is the irreparable harm. As to status quo, you go to the last uncontested, peaceable, uh, the place where the parties were here, that is what the Constitution required. That was, we brought this case to compel the department to do what it is required to do under the Constitution. And uh, that was the last peaceable, non-contested position. And as to irreparable harm, Your Honors, per se irreparable harm is considered in 
Title VII cases and non-compete cases. And, and, and I know that in the Gainesville Women, this uh, court used fundamental right, but the cases that were cited in that case did not involve fundamental rights. And remember, this is what else does any citizen can compel compliance with the amendment mean if it does not allow someone to come in and get injunctive relief? There is no other way. I mean, here we are three years later, the department's never done what it was supposed to do. The department's regulations are being uh, are not consistent uh, with the amendment. It has not done what the amendment says. On, on, that, on that point, on the amendment language specifically under um, subsection five, B5, uh, you're comparing the language or in the constitutional amendment to the and language in the statute, right? Yes. Um, is it your position that by the use of the language or in the constitutional amendment that it's constitutionally required that each type of entity doing these separate things has to be separately registered and licensed by the department? No, Your Honor. Um, every um, uh, an MNTC could do all of the things that are in that laundry list. Um, and uh, importantly, what the injunctions here have done, they don't touch the licenses that have already been So an entity, and um, again, you look at the plain language, it says or, and then you look at the intent analysis that was published, and it specifically states that that was in there. Remember, the legislature had defined an, uh, a dispensing organization using the term and. The amendment comes in and uses or, and then the legislature goes back and puts it back to and. Well, could the legislature have taken, say, two or three of these type of um, activities uh, and required an entity do two or three of them and license that particular entity as a requirement and then others as well, separately? No, no, Your Honor, the, the amendment is very, very clear. The amendment says an MMTC can do any one of those things. And it was specifically designed to overrule the definition that the legislature had been using for dispensing organizations. But, but then, then it seems it is your position that they have to be separately registered and licensed. Each they can, they can be, but they do not have to be. In other words, the, the, the amendment was specifically designed to allow an MMTC to do any one of those things. And that, listen, that makes sense because um, you don't go to the Tylenol store to buy Tylenol. You don't go to the Advil store to buy Advil. In a free market, you know, as Judge Makar said uh, below, he knows of no industry that uses vertical, I mean, that uses uh, vertical integration rather than horizontal integration. And I believe that there are 31 states that allow horizontal and follow a horizontal model, and there's uh, three that follow a vertical. And um, the um, uh, triangle brief shows that a, a horizontal uh, uh, integration system allows for more production so that you fill the availability. And remember, all of the stringent regulations in place stay there. The legislature has 
volumes of safety regulations to prevent the horrors that they are talking about. So counsel, I, it know, is, counsel, let me just follow up then on Justice Polson's question though. So you've told him that the department slash legislature cannot use as a basis for denying an application for a license or registration, the fact that an entity doesn't do multiple of these things that are listed in the definition. So what are the permissible grounds for regulation then? The permissible grounds of regulation are to allow someone to register and come in and show that they can do these things and, and one of these things or all of them. And the trial judge made a specific factual finding that the department already had a process in place and if you sever the unconstitutional provisions from the statute, there are already safety regulations in place. They just need to follow them. So basically, are you, are you saying, though, that it's kind of an entitlement? I mean, I don't understand what your criteria would be for how can I evaluate the validity of a regulation. I understand one thing you've clearly said is that I can't say you've got to do multiple of these things that are listed in the definition, but what am I allowed to tell you? Your Honor, they, they, you have to meet the, all of the voluminous requirements. You have to show that you can meet, you can be, remember, you're, you have to prove all of these initial things. You have to pay the licensing fee, you have to pay a $5 million bond, and, 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 and facilities will likely do more than one of those things. No, and I understand you're just telling me what the, what the regulations say. I'm trying to understand constitutionally, what is the standard against which we're supposed to judge the constitutionality of whatever the regulations might be? Well, Your Honor, the, the, they fail the rational basis test um, um, if, if you think that that is what applies. But what our position would be is you don't need to go there because you just look at the plain language of the amendment. And remember, again, this amendment changed the definition of a medical marijuana treatment center from what the department, I mean, what the statute had been using for dispensing organizations. So there was a clear intent to make this change to allow anyone and, and, you know, the legislature cannot under the guise of public policy come in and change the plain text of the constitution. And to the extent there's any doubt that or means or, look at the advisory opinion that you issued before in which you said these are ministerial things that they're gonna be doing. They're not gonna be making, the department would not be making public policy type decisions. And look at the analysis of the intent document. It expressly states that a medical marijuana treatment center can be required, can do one of the things or all of the things, doesn't have to do all of them. Your Honors, I see that my time is up. Um, we would just ask that we be given a fair chance to register so that we can be evaluated. These businesses that are selling for $50 million, there's something wrong with a system that keeps competition out, products scarce, and prices outrageously high. That is harming Florida's critically ill and terminally ill patients from getting the medical marijuana at reasonable prices. And it is totally contrary to fair market principles. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Now we'll go to rebuttal. Your Honor, I spent the bulk of my time 
walking carefully through the distinction between the amendments MMPC definition in regard to immunity and re in regard to registration, two prongs. The legislature is not changing words in the first prong, the legislature is acting under the second. Floor grown ignores that text in the amendment and the full text of the amendment, including the registration requirements in subsection D. But I'd like to spend my rebuttal time answering both Justice Muniz's question and Justice Lawson's question. In regard to Justice Muniz's question, the complaint that was filed was a facial challenge to the statute. This is not a reasonableness test. While the reasonableness is a factor under subsection D of the amendment and having available and safe use regulations, if the court has any question about whether there's a rational basis for the statute, the court should send it back down to the trial court. The House has intervened and it can properly consider that question. In regard to Justice Lawson's question, we're here on a preliminary injunction with a dated record. There are now 22 MMTCs and over 240 facilities. There is no irreparable harm because the application process remains available. Indeed, there are seven available licenses right now. There, in regard to irreparable harm and an adequate remedy under the law, there's no factual findings in the court's order. And the trial court even initially found that an injunction would substantially alter the status quo. And I urge this court to look to Judge Weatherall's dissent, where he said there's a carefully crafted regulatory scheme, including a statutory scheme, that should be left in place until the conclusion of this litigation. I thank the court for considering all our arguments today, uh, whether it be on the interpretation, whether it be on the lack of conflict with the MMTC caps, and whether it be in regard to the injunction. Thank you. Well, thank you. We thank you both for your arguments today. And before, um, this is our last case on the docket, uh, but before we conclude, I would like to express the court's uh, gratitude to all counsel for working uh, with the court uh, to make uh, today's video session successful. Uh, we did some preliminary work so everyone would uh, uh, understand the technology and, the, and, and we tried to minimize uh, the chance that the technology would fail us. Uh, so we appreciate uh, the, all the work that council put into that uh, uh, for today's uh, uh, session. Uh, I'd also like to thank our uh, clerk, uh, John Tomasino, his staff, uh, and the IT staff of the Office of the State Court Administrator. They obviously spent a lot of time getting um, uh, all of this together uh, from a technical perspective, and um, the court is deeply grateful to them uh, as well. So with that, um, thanks to all, and uh, this session of court is now concluded.